For those of you who are visiting, just a word of explanation to say that um, we have started a new series on Sunday mornings here, the title of which is Being Human. And the plan behind it is to take a look at some very ordinary aspects of being human and to ask the question, in what ways does the Bible speak to these things? Has it helped to give us about the ordinariness of being human as we think about it as Christians? And um, for the last three weeks we've been doing some sort of introductory stuff on that and thinking about uh, fundamental aspects of what it means to think about being human in biblical terms. And this morning we start out on a series of, of just looking at specific issues. I've always said uh, in this process that this, this is to be an interactive thing. Um, I mean, if you really feel you need to stand up and shout and complain in the middle of it, feel free to do that. But I mean more in terms of that you'll respond uh, and discuss with me what I say or don't say, what you agree with or you feel is missed out or whatever, because I'm quite happy to come back and, and preach some of these again. I, I think I have enough humility after all of these years uh, to know that I'm probably going to get it wrong somewhere along the line, and I'll be quite happy to come back and try and put it right. And this morning, probably appropriately enough, having just said that, I want to think about being insecure, being human and being insecure. For some people, it's walking into a room full of strangers brings it out, a deep sense of insecurity. For some, it's enough to be standing at the bus queue with a range of strangers uh, who you don't even have to speak to to feel a measure of insecurity. For some, it's the first few weeks in a new job, not sure whether you can actually cope with this, not sure whether you are or will be accepted. For some, it's a constant state of mind, manifest in a sense of anxiety and constant nervousness. For some people, the public realm is easy. Working with other people is easy. But it's the intimate that is terrifying. It's in the intimate relationships they feel terribly insecure. For some, it's any relationship that starts to get meaningful. For some, it's just never an issue, it appears, until something goes wrong. Something happens outside of our control, and we suddenly begin to feel insecure. For some, the whole concept of being insecure is a mystery. You just don't understand it until something like death affects them or their family, and then nothing seems certain anymore. Some people exude confidence, and you'd think they would never have feelings of insecurity of any kind. And that's just not true, because being human means there are times when we feel very insecure. In truth, it's not the confident that don't experience a deep sense of insecurity. It's the content. Confidence is important, and it's a good thing to instill it in children. But confidence alone is no guard against a sense of insecurity. There needs to be a balance of confidence and contentment. And being human means that as people who sit here this morning, there are times we have to deal with this sense and the issue of being and feeling insecure. Christians are in no way immune from this experience. So I want to address this this morning, and I want to do so by telling you a story. I was inspired by our fellowship group on Wednesday evening which is the best fellowship group there is. So if you're thinking of coming to one, come and join us. And as we were thinking about it, I I decided that rather than just deal with this in abstract terms, I wanted to deal with it in terms of Saul and uh, to reflect a little bit on the case study, if you like, of Saul. So you might like to turn to 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. If you're following uh, or going to use one of the Bibles that's in the pews, um, you'll find the, the passage that we're going to Uh, work around on page 278, page 278 of the Bibles that are in the pews. 
And uh, I want to read a little bit of the background here by way of introduction before we think about aspects of this situation. 1 Samuel chapter 9, uh, it begins in verse 1 with these words. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, son of Zior, son of Bekorath, the son of Aphiah, of Benjamin. He had a son named Saul, an impressive young man, without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than any of the others. Now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father, Kish, were lost. And Kish said to his son Saul, Take one of the servants with you and go look for the donkeys. So he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and through the area around Shalesha, but they did not find them. They went to the district of Shalom, but the donkeys were not there. Then he passed through the territory of Benjamin, but they did not find them. When they reached the district of Zuf, Paul said to the servant who was with him, Come, let's go back or my father will stop thinking about the donkeys and start worrying about us. But the servant replied, Look, in this town there is a man of God. He is highly respected and everything he says comes true. Let's go there now. Perhaps he will tell us what way to take. Saul said to his servant, If we go, what can we give the man? The food in our sacks is gone. We have no gift to take the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered him again. Look, he said, I have a quarter of a shekel of silver. I will give it to the man of God so that he will tell us what way to take. Formerly in Israel, if a man went to inquire of God, he would say, Come, let us go to the seer, because the prophet of today used to be called the seer. Good, Saul said to his servant, Come, let's go. So they set out for the town where the man of God was. As they were going up the hill to the town, they met some girls coming out to draw water, and they asked them, Is the seer here? He is, they answered. He's ahead of you. Hurry now. He has just come to our town today, for the people have a sacrifice at the high place. As soon as you enter the town, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. The people will not begin eating until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterwards, those who are invited will eat. Go up now. You should find him about this time. They went up to the town, and as they were entering it, there was Samuel coming towards them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, anoint him leader over my people Israel. He will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked upon my people, for their cry has reached me. When Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. And we'll leave the reading there at this point. One of the features of Saul that's made very clear in verse 2 of chapter 9 that we just read was that he's impressive in his appearance. He's taller than most people of his age and generation. And he really stands out as a young man of significant physique. We have here the ideal candidate for kingship. And yet the truth is we have here a very insecure young man. We should never judge by appearances. We do it all the time, but we shouldn't. The judgments we make on the basis of appearance actually probably tell us a great deal more about ourselves than they do about the people we judge. When we see the strengths and the gifts, when we see the lack of worry or concern, when the pasture looks greener in the people we're observing, it probably tells us something about ourselves and our own desires. Samuel and Saul meet in the hill country of Ephraim. Saul, as the text tells us, is out looking for his father's donkeys. And as you can see from verse 5 of the passage that we've just read together, Saul wants to go home. And it is his servant who prevails upon him to keep looking. 
which ultimately leads to his meeting with Samuel, the great priest and prophet, who has already been told by God that this man he will meet is the one he is to anoint as king over Israel. Later on in verse 20, when Samuel indicates to Saul the nature of what is going to happen to him, and he says that the desire of Israel is turned to you and all your father's family, Saul is terrified. And look at what he says in verse 21 of chapter 9. Am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? And I need to give you a bit of the background here so that you'll understand this. Because this is no false modesty, really, that Saul is expressing here. And what we have at this particular point in Scripture is one of the most interesting stories in the Old Testament, I think. Saul is referring to the fact that he comes from one of the twelve tribes in Israel, named after ten of Jacob's sons and Joseph's two sons. Each tribe was divided into clans. And by the time Saul is around and Samuel is around, each tribe has a portion of land within which it was largely autonomous. Some years previous to the meeting that has just taken place between Saul and Samuel, there was a horrific incident in the history of Israel. The details you can read about from Judges chapter 18 to the end of the book of Judges. Let me tell you it briefly. A Levite travelled from the hill country of Ephraim, uh, Samuel's home, which is um, just in around this area up here. And he travelled down through the region of Benjamin, which would have been right down through this area, into Bethlehem, which was the area of the tribe of Judah. He had gone there to collect his concubine. She had run away, and he had gone to retrieve her. On the way back, travelling up through the land of Benjamin, night was closing in, and they were very near the city of Jebus, which was later to be captured by David and to be called Jerusalem. They're coming up through Bethlehem, and they're going to be heading up probably to this region up around here. It's getting late. And Jebus, the city at that time, was inhabited by the Jebusites, a pretty fierce bunch, as the Israelites weren't able to actually defeat them. And the Levite says to his servant in Judges 19 and verse 12, we won't go to a city where the people are not Israelites, we'll go on to Gabeah, which is in Benjamin, amongst the people of Benjamin. In other words, we'll stick with our own people. We'll stick with the people we know rather than risk the night in a foreign city. At first, strangely, they are offered no hospitality by the people of Gabeah in Benjamin, even though they are fellow Israelites. They settle down to spend the night in the city square, the town square, and an old man comes as he walks back in from his fields and offers them accommodation for the night. The old man is actually also from the hill country of Ephraim, but he happens to be working in this region of Gabeah, and he lives there now, and he takes them home. The reason he takes them home is because he's very afraid for their safety in this Benjamite city. When he takes them home, as night falls, a group of men gather round the house and they demand that the old man send out the Levite who is staying with him. They say, send him out, we want to have sex with him. There's a lot that goes on, you can read all about this in, in Judges, and the upshot of it is that the old man will not send out the Levite, but that the Levite to quell the crowd, sends out his concubine, who is basically gang-raped and is dead in the morning. One can hardly imagine the scene both inside and outside of the house that evening. The Levite goes back on his journey to the hill country of Ephraim. He continues to head on up north into this region. 
When he gets there, having taken the dead body of his concubine with him, he severs the parts of the body and he sends them to the different tribes of Israel as a demonstration of the evil that is taking place in Gibeah. The tribes gather together and in a meeting they demand that the perpetrators of this violence and the death of this woman be handed over for justice. The Benjamite community refuse and there ensues a very bloody civil war. And the battle takes place at Gibeah of Benjamin. 25,000 men of Gibeah and Benjamin die in the fighting. 10,000 of the other Israelites also die in the fighting. The tribe of Benjamin, and particularly the clans around Gibeah, are decimated. About 600 men are left, and they flee. But all the women and children of Gibeah have been put to the sword, as well as the men. This was one of the bloodiest low points in the history of the people of Israel. Wives were eventually found, and you can read how in Judges, for the remaining 600 men among the tribes, because at the end of the war, no one wanted Benjamin as a tribe to disappear. To say the wives were found is a little unfair, because they were actually taken, probably very much against their will, which is a bit ironic, but we haven't time to develop that. So when we read in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 26, that this man Saul that we've just read about in 1 Samuel chapter 9 comes from Gibeah, we begin to understand some of what is going on in this particular situation. Saul is one of the children born out of the history of civil war and shame within Israel. His mother, or more likely his grandmother, was a stolen bride. Ironically, quite likely a rape victim herself. Saul of Gibeah is in the hill country of Ephraim. That's where we meet him, as we read in 1 Samuel chapter 9, which is the home of Samuel and the home of the Levite, whose concubine was raped to death. Saul of Gibeah is in hostile territory. No wonder he wanted to go home. When Samuel tells him he's going to be king, it's no false modesty to say he is from the smallest tribe and the smallest clan of the tribe. It is nothing other than a fact. Indeed, he is from the people of shame. Little wonder that later when Samuel wishes to present him to the leaders of all the tribes of Israel, they can't find him. In chapter 10 and verse 21, it says, when they looked for him, he was not to be found. He had hidden himself among the baggage. As I reflect on Saul's background, I draw the following conclusion. That Saul's background was significant in shaping his sense of insecurity, but also that we are not merely the victims of our background. It was not Saul's fault that he was a Benjamite. It was not Saul's fault that as a head and shoulders above everybody else, huge man standing in the hill country of Ephraim, he carried all the baggage of the past. It was not Saul's fault that he was nervous of entering and hanging around the hill country of Ephraim. But even though it wasn't his fault, and even though he looked impressive physically, he was clearly desperately insecure. And the truth is that you and I can do nothing about our backgrounds, our culture, or the influences under which we grew up. But even with the story of Saul, 
we discover that the Bible teaches us that we are not merely the victims of our circumstances. That the insecurities with which we struggle as human beings are not unalterable. Saul very soon discovers that God uses him to rescue the Israelites from Jabesh who are under attack from their enemies. His background, his status as a lowly farmer of the smallest clan of the smallest tribe of a people of shame is no barrier to God calling him and God using him. The circumstances that shaped you and generate any sense of insecurity that you experience have not relegated you to the status of victim for the rest of your life. In the context of Christian faith, the grace of God and the Holy Spirit can work change in us and through us. This is not to say that the scars of the past are eradicated. It's not to say that the attitudes of other people towards us change. It is to say that there can be a renewing work in us through which our sense of security and contentment develops in God and through the grace of God. When another Saul, Saul of Tarsus, came to understand that his persecution of Christians was not the glorious work of God he thought it was, but actually the work of a blasphemer, a persecutor and a violent man, he did not descend into a spiral of self-deprecating insecurity. Through what he describes as the mercy and unlimited patience of Jesus Christ, when he's writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy, he takes up the role of ambassador and apostle of Jesus Christ. Throughout the pages of scripture, unlikely people, sometimes in human terms crippled under the weight of emotional and cultural baggage, find new contentment and confidence in God. As the Apostle Paul himself says in Philippians chapter 4 and verses 12 to 13, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. It's clear that Saul of Gabeah at 30 years of age, despite all the baggage of his birth and the natural insecurities he would experience, can rise to the call and privilege of king by the grace of God in the power of God. But one of the features of Saul is his continued insecurity. And his continued insecurity clearly lies in the choices that he makes. He's a very interesting study in this because almost immediately Saul starts to make poor choices which simply nurture his inherent sense of insecurity. In 1 Samuel 13, and we don't have time to read all of these chapters, I would really encourage you to read through all of this yourselves. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, Saul's army are losing confidence. And so is Saul. In one sense, you can't blame him. His son Jonathan, who doesn't seem to share all his father's insecurities, has taken a thousand men and mounted a raid on a Philistine outpost. He has enraged the Philistines, who are a much superior fighting force, and are mobilized now to teach the Israelites a lesson. There is no equal match here. The Philistines are much stronger. So the Israelite soldiers are beginning to hide in caves, in pits, and truthfully, as far away as possible. As 1 Samuel 13 verse 7 tells us, the troops were quaking with fear. And Saul, rather than wait for Samuel to come and sacrifice to the Lord as was Samuel's role and responsibility, Saul does it himself. It's a big mistake. 
It's a bad choice. It is actually the beginning of the end of his kingdom. In the the hours that follow, when Jonathan begins a rout of the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter 14, Saul is crippled by indecision. And he begins to make more poor decisions and choices. He commands that no one is to eat food until the enemy are completely defeated. A crazy decision. He is so self-obsessed that he puts his people under ridiculous pressure and is prepared to kill Jonathan, his own son, when he discovers that Jonathan, without knowing about the command, had eaten some food, some honey, during the day. The consequence of these bad choices? He loses face in front of his entire army when the soldiers refuse to allow him to touch Jonathan. His sense of insecurity grows and deepens because of the choices that he makes. When he's told to deal with the Amalekites in a very specific way, Saul does it his own way. And then he lies to Samuel when Samuel challenges him about what's happened in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And again, he loses face in front of his troops when Samuel destroys his prized possession from the battle. Indeed, Saul begs Samuel in 1 Samuel 15 and verse 30 to honor him before the elders of his people. Here is the king grasping at the robe of the priest, looking for some public honor and recognition. And so it continues. David becomes a threat to him after the killing of Goliath. Jonathan, his own son, becomes a threat because of his loyalty to David. And although he reigns for 42 years, we find him constantly feeling threatened, behaving violently, and even paralyzed by fear. There comes a point in Saul's life when it isn't his background that is the source of his insecurity. It's his choices and his view of God. However tough we feel the hand dealt to us in life is, we are likely to suffer as much from our choices as our circumstances. It's so important that we are genuinely sympathetic when people make poor choices because of the baggage they carry. It's also important that when we make poor choices, we own them. We take responsibility for them. Only then can we deal with them and rise above the consequences by the grace of God. So as I think of Saul of Gabeah and his poor choices, I draw the following lessons. Firstly, I need to seek to know and then be honest with myself about my fears and limitations. Saul wasn't. He covered with bluster and lies. It led to more pain. It's better to know what you can't handle than try to handle what you can't. You only end up more insecure. It's not for nothing that Paul exhorts the Colossians to a life of truthfulness, forbearance and forgiveness. In Colossians chapter 3, read it in verses 5 to 10 and 12 to 14. Because where there is truthfulness, forbearance and forgiveness, Paul says, the peace of Christ rules in your hearts. Colossians 3.15 And where the peace of Christ rules, insecurity is kept under control. The second lesson I would draw from observing Saul's choices is this, that I need to think long and hard about what I believe about God and his capacity to exercise executive authority in any and every situation. I need to think hard what I believe about God. 
Saul experiences 40 years of self-inflicted needless torture because he can't sort out whether God really will keep his word. He can't be sure that God will deliver him from his enemies and he can't be sure that God will really take the kingdom from him because of his disobedience. He struggles with God at both ends. Will God come to my aid when I need him? Is one question. And the other is, is there any way I can circumvent God's declared plans and justice? The writer to the Hebrews exhorts the early Christians to be confident in God and to endure in faith. God's attitude toward us and his faithfulness to his word is seen in the work of Christ on our behalf. And when writing to people who were facing persecution and encouraging them to be strong, the writer says in Hebrews 6.19, We have this hope in God as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Without minimizing the external pressures and factors that shake us, we have to ask ourselves the question, how much of my sense of insecurity arises from my failure to believe that God is faithful. We all know that we shouldn't compartmentalize our lives. We know that we shouldn't live our lives in little different boxes. A box for work where we have one set of rules. A box for family where we have another set of rules. A box for social interaction where we have another set of rules. A God box where we come to church and live by a different set of rules. We know that everything is connected and everything is to be connected up. We know that. But the same is true of our insecurity and our fears. We're not to set them in a separate box. As if being a Christian and having faith in God didn't have something to say about our sense of insecurity. And the third, thing, third lesson I draw from observing Saul's insecurity as a consequence of his choices is this. That I believe that one of the greatest witnesses to the reality of the gospel is a community of confident Christians. I was asked one time about my goal as a pastor. What was I trying to achieve as a pastor? My answer was to help nurture a community of confident Christians. I don't mean arrogant Christians. I don't mean thoughtless Christians. I don't mean people who are cocky. I mean people who are confident about what they believe, but more importantly, confident in the God who meets us in the person of Jesus Christ. Confident of his grace, his justice, his mercy, and his purposes, whether they are clear or unknown. As I look at Saul of Gibeah, I see the danger of churches full of people who either need to stamp their authority and bullied to get their own way, or are terrified of addressing change and new challenges. It would be a nightmare. It takes David, son of Jesse, to come on the scene and model, despite all his human weaknesses and potential insecurity, a trust in God that we hear wonderfully expressed in Psalm 62. And it's people like that that I believe are a faithful witness to the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me read to you Psalm 62. You might like to turn to it. It's on page 579. It's written 
out of a life that experienced both privilege and tragedy. My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I shall never be shaken. This does not mean that David didn't have fears and worries. Because listen to what he says in the next verses. How long will you assault a man? Would all of you throw him down this leaning wall, this tottering fence? They fully intend to topple him from his lofty place. They take delight in lies. With their mouths they bless, but in their hearts they curse. And that's the reality of his life at this particular time. Still, he says, find rest, O my soul, in God alone. My hope comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I shall not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Low-born men are but a breath. The high-born are but a lie. If wet on a balance, they're nothing. Together, they're only a breath. Do not trust in extortion or take pride in stolen goods. Though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. One thing God has spoken. Two things that I have heard. That you, O God, are strong. And that you, O Lord, are loving. Surely you will reward each person according to what he has done. Being human means being insecure at some time, at some point, in some area, to some degree, some of the time. As we look at the life of Saul, I think we can say that none of us are merely the victims or prisoners of our past. It is possible to seek contentment in God. That we should seek to know and be honest about our insecurities, because only then can we begin to address them. That we should think long and hard about what we believe about God and how that plays into our weaknesses and our lives. That we should meditate upon the words of this psalm and make it our goal to seek to become, by the grace of God, confident, contented Christians.